And you can be seated. Anybody who's been a Christian for any length of time knows that the Christian life is different than the non-Christian life. When God changes you, he changes you from the inside out, and things that you once desired you no longer desire, things that you never thought you would desire, all of a sudden you find yourself desiring. And that is a result of the Spirit of God, who is holy and righteous, coming into you and changing you. Um, It says it many, many times in different ways in the New Testament that God dwells within you, and one of the ministries of the Spirit of God is him changing you into the likeness of himself. And a lot of us, I think, um, have thought about this in a wrong way over the years, where when we talk about the Christian life, it, it sinks into the level of rules. It sinks into the level of legalism, where we state that a Christian does or doesn't do this because he's a Christian, and rather than let the righteousness and holiness of God dictate what we do. And so this morning, I've I've titled the sermon, A Proper Walk with God, and we're going to be taking a look at five different passages in the book of Ephesians, um, where Paul uses the word walk to describe the commands that he's giving to the church in Ephesus about how they should live. Um, There are five of them. Um, I'll go through them with you in a minute, but they are walk worthy, which is found in chapter 4, verse 1. Walk not as the Gentiles walk, which is found in verse 17. Walk in love, which is found in chapter 5, verse 1. Walk as children of light, which is found in chapter 5, verse 7. And then walk in wisdom, which is chapter 5, verse 15. Now, The interesting thing about these passages, and really what I want to share with you this morning and communicate clearly, is that within all five of these passages, there are three components that just jump right off the page in each of them, and they're consistent right through these passages. So as we ask ourselves, what does it mean to walk with God, I think it'll be helpful to us to to see these three things, and the three components are these, knowing God's word, practicing righteousness, and denying ungodliness. Knowing God's word, practicing righteousness, and denying ungodliness. Say it with me. Knowing God's word, practicing righteousness, denying ungodliness. When When I read the scriptures, probably like you, I'm always on the lookout for patterns. I'm on the lookout to see what repeats itself over and over again. Ideas that represent themselves consistently throughout the scriptures that are repeated enough that they attract my attention. By definition, a pattern is a combination of qualities or ideas or acts or tendencies that form a consistent or characteristic arrangement. Uh, That's the technical definition. And patterns show up everywhere in life. The the more you stop and look around you, the more you realize that life is patterned, which in and of itself gives us a clue that we were made and this is not chaos. Um, There's patterns in this room. The arrangement of the windows, the arrangement of the pews, the centrality of things, the the way things are arranged. There's patterns here. There were um, oral patterns, A-U-R-A-L, sound patterns in the music that we sang. 
that repeated themselves that allowed us to sing. Um, there are patterns everywhere in art, mathematics, music, nature, science, language. They're all around us. And they're, I'm glad they're there because they give us a point of reference in everything that we do. Even driving down the road, we see the pattern of the road, where the road ends and the side of the road stops. It keeps us on the road. These patterns give us a reference point in life. Uh, as infants, everything that we learn is by pattern recognition, whether it's words that we hear over and over again as we you know, teach our, our young ones to, to speak, social skills, emotions, commands, punishment, discipline. Life is learned by the patterns that exist around us. And when it comes to reading the Bible, I think that the patterns are there by design, that God put them there. Things are no different. As we read the scriptures, we recognize that there are ideas that represent themselves in the Bible in patterns, maybe stated in different ways in different places, but the ideas are there. Like take, for example, we know that God is eternal. That's part of our theology. We understand that God is forever. Well, how do we know that? It's because it doesn't say God is eternal, God is eternal, God is eternal, God is eternal. stated that way, but you go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, what do you read? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in the beginning of time, before we even started time, God was already there, which gives us the idea that God is eternal. He had no beginning. Uh, Revelation 22 says, verse 13, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Psalm 90, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. So it says it in different ways, but the idea is repeated, and so we come up with a doctrine or a part of our theology that we understand about God, and we state it that way. I believe that pattern recognition is one of the greatest Bible study tools that we have, and we ought to be doing this as we read. And I also believe that those patterns are there intentionally, made by God, to help us gain an accurate understanding of what he wants us to know. So this morning, I'd like to share one of those patterns and show you how it repeats itself all the way through the second half of the book of Ephesians. Every time he uses the word walk, you'll see these three components show up in one way or another in what Paul's trying to communicate. And what were they? Knowing God's word, practicing righteousness, and denying ungodliness. If you've read the book of Ephesians before, you know that the book can be split into two halves. The first three chapters are predominantly doctrinal. Paul is teaching them about their identity in Christ, who they are in Christ, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's teaching them about sin. He's teaching them about salvation and the grace of God. He's teaching them about the formation of the church and how it happened and chapters 4 through 6, when you get to the end of the chapter 3, he begins chapter 4 with, therefore, and the rest of the book is all very, very practical. What should I do with all this knowledge about salvation and God that I've learned? Well, here it is. And he gives in chapters 4, 5, and 6 the practical advice of how we ought to live. And he uses the word walk to kind of hang the ideas of what he's trying to communicate um, throughout the second half of the book. So if you take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians, we're going to be there in chapters 4 and 5. And I'm going to go through these one at a time. I'll read the passage, and then as I read, I would like for you 
to investigate it with me. So as we're reading through, see if you can see the ideas, these three ideas that present themselves, the, the understanding of God's word or knowing or knowledge of God's word, practicing righteousness, where he's giving them positive information about what we ought to be like as a Christian and then denying ungodliness and what we ought to avoid uh, as we walk with God. So let's begin with chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And this is the section where Paul says to walk worthy of the, or in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. So chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all, and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of, uh, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, it's a long passage. There's a lot in there. We're not going to expound every word and thought in there. But what I want to do is, in that passage, to show or to pull out these three ideas that, uh, that are there. The first one is, if we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, it's our responsibility to know some things. And that responsibility never goes away. Um, the, the older I become, and the longer I have been a Christian, the more I realize how much I don't know. And that may sound funny coming from a pastor or somebody who studies, but I am amazed the more that I read, uh, the more that I listen to other men who have studied the word and give sermons or read books that have written, been written by men who have studied the word. And in my own study of the word itself, there's always something that is, I didn't know that, or I didn't make that connection. And so I don't think we can ever exhaust it. And as much emphasis as we put on this church of reading the word, reading the word, reading the word, I think it's a right emphasis. And Paul here certainly does emphasize it as well. There are things that we need to know. Um, the passage begins with the word, therefore. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk worthy. Well, therefore, what is it doing? It's pointing back to something that Paul just 
said, which in my estimation was basically the first half of the book. It was, he was expecting them to understand what he told them and to know God's word in that sense, and therefore, based on that knowledge, to, to walk with him. In verses 4 through 6, Paul again reminds them, this is why, he says in verse 2, to walk with humility and gentleness, but why? There's a, there's a knowledge behind what we're doing. We're not just doing it for the sake of doing it. And he goes into the, the oneness of our faith, the one body, one spirit, uh, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and reminds them again that they need to know that. If you look down in verse 13, what is the ultimate goal of what we're growing into? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and what? The knowledge of the Son of God. So as we're growing, our knowledge is growing, and ultimately we're growing into a better and perfect knowledge of Jesus, of who he is, the Son of God, the Creator, the Sustainer of life. And, and, and as we grow and we learn more about him, then we're walking worthy. Um, verse 14, he uses two illustrations to talk about our knowledge. The first one is waves. He says in, in uh, the first part of the verse, as a result of this knowledge of God, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves. Most of us have probably been to the beach with kids and watched the little one get knocked over for the first time by a big wave. Some of us have probably been knocked over by big waves. And you know the force that's carried by water. There's, there's, a, there's a power to it. And the illustration is pretty clear. He says, as you grow from childhood in your Christian faith to maturity and adulthood, your knowledge is going to increase. And that knowledge is going to anchor you so that when false doctrine comes, when people tell you things that are not true, when you hear things that are not true, you will have the knowledge of God enough so that when that wave hits you, you're not going to move. You'll, you'll stand firm, not tossed here and there by waves which has to do with what we know. And then he says it another way in the next phrase, carried about by every wind of doctrine. And again, we've all been in windstorms and been blown by the wind. I can remember living down in uh, Westport when Hurricane Bob came through in 1991. It's going back a ways. And uh, the eye of the storm actually passed right over our town. And so we had the, the winds buffeted one way. The eye came through, we actually saw the sun right in the middle of the hurricane, and then it came through and the winds blew in the opposite direction. A lot of damage, roads were, were taken up. But in the middle of the storm, in the height of it, I actually walked outside just to do it. And the winds, the sustained winds in Bob were about 120 miles an hour. It was gusting up to about 140, if I remember correctly. And uh, it wasn't fun. I just stepped outside the door, and there was so much debris in the air that it just ping, 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 stung you everywhere. And it was hard. you could actually lean right into the wind, and it would hold you up. You know, it was powerful. And I can imagine that you know, if my footing wasn't secure, if I had something to hold on to, it would blow you away. And that's what wind does. So the waves, the wind, they're talking about the force of false doctrines, the force of ideas that are opposite of the word of God. And as we mature in Christ, and that knowledge gains and we increase in knowledge, then we will be more sure-footed to stand against the waves and the winds. So know God's word. Well, what about practicing righteousness in this passage? If you go back to verse 2, he states it in verse 1, walk worthy. How? By living out the fruit of the Spirit, by practicing righteousness. 
What is righteousness? Righteousness is when you act like God acts. Um, we cannot act like God acts in his supernatural qualities. You know, we're not creative like God. We're not everywhere like God. We don't know everything like God knows everything. But in God's moral character, when we talk about God's holiness or his goodness or his faithfulness or his patience or his love, those are the qualities that he is changing within us to make evident in our lives. That's practicing righteousness. It's doing, it's making decisions, having our attitudes and our thoughts arranged around who God is. So in verse 2, what does he say? If you're going to walk worthy of the Lord, then you do it with all humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance or showing forbearance to each other, and love. Practice righteousness. Do things the way God would do them. In verse 3, he uh, uses the word preserving unity. Which again, you're going to find that in these concepts, when you practice righteousness, it's always outward. When you practice ungodliness, it's always inward. Every single time. Humility is shown toward other people, right? You humble yourself and exalt someone else. Gentleness you're not just showing gentleness to yourself. This is outward. It's you're being gentle to other people. Um, preserving unity is the same thing. You're, you're putting down your own thoughts for the sake of the unity of the group or the whole. And again, it's an outward thing. Um, and then verse 3, he talks about um, pursuing peace. Preserve the, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And so we are to be peacemakers, peace seekers with each other. So practice righteousness. You want to walk with God, know the word of God, and live like God wants you to live, according to his character, his moral character. Now, in this passage, when we get to the denying ungodliness part, it's more implied in this one than it is directly stated. It's much more clearly directly stated in the others. Um, But I believe even as you think about the word worthy itself, it implies that you need to deny ungodliness. If you're going to be worthy, you're, you're, um, you're living in such a way to reflect the character of the thing that you're worthy of. In this case, it's God. And so if you're walking worthy of the calling that God's called you to, then it's going to require not only living in a positive way, but also getting rid of the things that are going to hold you back. It's also implied in verse 12 with the word service. And when he says, equipping the saints for the work of service, Again, you're putting yourself down or out for the sake of somebody else. That's what service is. Jesus said that he didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And then also the word maturity in verse 13, um, when he says that we will attain, down in the second half of the verse, to a mature man. Um, Even as you think about maturity in the sense of kids growing up, what happens? Childish things, foolish things disappear, and more serious things enter into the life as you become an adult. Uh, It's it's implied in the word maturity. So, walk worthy of the vocation. You see knowing God's word, you see practicing righteousness, and you see denying ungodliness. The next one, walk not as the other Gentile, or walk not as the Gentiles, also walk in verse 17. Uh, 
And I'm going to read just down to verse 24, but really this covers the whole passage down to verse 32. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, uh, but I will reference it as we go through. And again, as I'm reading, look to see if you can see the concepts of knowing your knowledge of God's word, practicing righteousness and denying ungodliness. Verse 17, this I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. Indeed, if you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in, according, in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. And I'll reference the rest of the passage as we go through. But, but here the, the walk command is to walk not as the Gentiles walk. Now, who are the Gentiles? Uh, the Gentiles is, are anybody who's not Jewish, technically, in the scriptures, but in this case, it's representative of the unsaved world in general. It's people who don't know God, people who have never come to faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul is asking Christians, who he's writing to, to take a look at the world around them and observe, watch how they live, and he's commanding them to not live like that. Because you didn't learn that in Christ. You learned another way. And so he's making that comparison. So do we find the knowledge of God's word in this passage? Is, I think we do. Some of it's reversed as you look at the life of the Gentiles. And you, you kind of go opposite of what he's saying. What does he say in verse 17? He says, don't walk as the Gentiles walk. How do they walk? In the futility of their, their mind. The futility of their mind. Futility means devoid of truth or empty. So in the mind of a person who doesn't know God, he's not concerned about truth. He's not concerned about God. He's not concerned about the things that we would be concerned about. Depravity would be another way of, of putting it. And so if we're not to walk like that, what's the opposite? If their minds are empty of truth, our minds should be full of truth. The knowledge of God. What's, what's he say in verse 18? Being darkened in their understanding. Again, he's talking about what they know. And how does he describe it? Dark. We're going to look at light and darkness in just a minute in the passage that comes up in uh, chapter 5. But what do you know if you enter into a dark place? Not much. It's hard to, to know anything if you can't see it, right? You could be in a room and there could be all kinds of things around you, but you wouldn't know it because it's dark. There's no light to expose and to inform you of what's there. You've, we've all tried to make our way through a dark place that we've never been in before. If you've ever been visiting in somebody's house and you've got to get up to go to the bathroom, it's dark and you don't know where you're going. And you don't know where the light switch is. You don't know where the doorknob is. And you're fumbling around. Well, the light came on. Oh, okay. And you just go. Light helps us. It's, it gives us knowledge. And so their understanding is what? It's darkened, which means they don't have the understanding of God. 
And what's the opposite of that? Be to have the understanding, to, to be enlightened, to have the light of God within us. At the end of verse 18, he also calls them ignorant, the ignorance that is in them. And that's just simply, a, again, a lack of knowledge. They're ignorant of the truth. And therefore, we need to be knowledgeable of the truth. If you jump down to verse 23, what does he say? That you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. How do you renew your mind? Read. Plain and simple. If you want to learn something, read. Read books. Read the scripture in particular. You want to know about God, read. Renew the spirit of your mind. It's the only way to do it. If you can't read, have somebody read for you. Listen to the words. Knowledge comes by words. It's how we learn. It's language. And there have to be words. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So knowing God's word is here. Again, walk worthy of the Lord. Walk not as the Gentiles walk. The three components, know God's word, practice righteousness, and deny ungodliness. They're all there. So this passage, what about practicing righteousness? Verse 24, what's it say? Put on the, the new self. What is that? It's the self that God created when he saved you, as opposed to the old self, which is what you were born with. What does that new self look like? In verse 24, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created. The likeness of God, what is that? It's the way God is. It's his moral quality. It's his love. It's his compassion. It's his kindness, his faithfulness. So when you put on the new self, you're walking, you're living in righteousness according to God's um, character. He lists it out in the end of verse 24. It's been created in what? Righteousness and holiness and truth. And truth, again, we could relate back to the knowledge. But these are the things that we ought to be concerned about. This is practicing righteousness. He gets real specific at the end of the chapter. Verse 25, what's he say? Speak the truth to everyone. Um, verse 28, he says, let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor with his own hands what is good. Goodness. To labor with your own hands what is good. Why? So that you may have something to share with him who has need. And again, look at the practice of righteousness as outward. It's always giving something to someone. It's, it's, it's looking out for something. If you speak the truth to someone else, you're practicing righteousness. If you give to someone else, you're practicing righteousness. Verse 32, verse we, most of us know, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So is practicing righteousness in here? Sure. All through the passage. What about denying ungodliness? Well, yeah. Go back to verse 19. Describing the Gentiles, what are they like? And they, having become callous, we've all had calluses on our hands. It, it makes the, I've got them on my fingers from playing the guitar, and I'm just going like this. I can feel this one. I can't feel this one. The tips of my fingers are dulled. If, if I was going to try to pick something up with this hand right now, I wouldn't be able to do it as well as with this hand because the, the, the sensitivity is gone from, from doing that. That's what callous does. It makes you insensitive to the truth of what's around you. So their hearts have become callous, resulting in what? They've given themselves over to 
sensuality, and call it for what it is, it's unbridled lust. What is lust? It's a desire to please yourself in any form, any fashion. That's what lust is. And they have given themselves over because of their callousness to lust, sensuality. They're pleasing themselves. Again, practicing righteousness is outward. Ungodliness is when you please yourself, which is exactly what he's describing here. So for us, don't give yourself over to sensuality like they do. Don't walk as the Gentiles do is the command, acting without regard to God or others. Verse 19, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Impurity is just morally unclean. They have no moral compass to tell them what's right and wrong. We see this all over the place. People want things a certain way in our society, but they're unwilling to look at the morality of what they're doing. We don't want unwanted pregnancies, but we don't want to get rid of living together without being married. It's, you, could, you could give example after example after example where people just want to do what they want to do without regard for the morality of what it is. And so Paul is saying, what, this is, they, they practice impurity. And that's what happens around us if you just open your eyes and look. We, we all know this. So what's the command for us? Don't do that. Don't practice impurity or unclean motives or greediness, the desire to have more. That's a tough one because it's more in our minds than it is anything else. But I think all of us face that temptation to want more and more and more here and now for our lives, more money, more friends, more whatever. You fill in the blank. But that's the way the world is. It's the way the Gentiles are. Everything is about getting. You know, when people are willing to kill to get more of what they want, whatever the thing is. Greediness. It's the opposite of what we, greediness is inward, righteousness is outward. Verse 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. I mean, he says this, it's, you see the repetition of this? It's just over and over, and he's saying it in different ways, and he's bringing up specific examples, but he's saying the same thing. Don't be corrupted. To be corrupted means to be destroyed or damaged by lust and deceit or the deceitfulness of lust. You can look at it a couple different ways in the original. Being deceived or craving for what is forbidden. He says, don't, don't do that. Lay it aside. Verse 24, he says, put on the... Is what I want? Verse 22, lay aside the old self. Verse 25, lay aside falsehood. Why would you lie? Again, you're lying to try to create a false impression that somebody else would have of you so that you can be thought of in a better way, usually, or to protect yourself from something that you've done. Why do people lie? It's really one of those two reasons. Either trying to bolster yourself up in somebody's mind or you're trying to get out of punishment because you know that if you tell the truth, it's going to come back on you. So what does he say? Lay it aside. Don't lie. Speak the truth. Um, anger, same thing, verse 26. He says, control your anger. Be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Take care of business before you go to bed. Don't let 
something between you and another brother go on and on. Control it. He says it in verse 31 the same way. Let bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Verse 28, do not steal. Don't take what doesn't belong to you. Verse 29, don't use your words to tear other people down. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification, according to the need of the moment. So you see these patterns, again, in this, in this passage. To know God's word, don't be darkened or empty like the Gentiles. To put on the new self and to lay aside the old self. To practice righteousness, to deny ungodliness. Next one, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Here Paul says to walk in love. So again, he's stating it a different way, how we ought to walk as a Christian. But let's look for those again. I'll read it, see if you can pick them out. To know God's word, to practice righteousness, to deny ungodliness. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a, of, as a fragrant aroma. Do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you, as is proper among saints. For there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. So walk as children of light. I'm sorry. Walk in love. I skipped over one. To walk in love. To know God's word. He starts off right in verse 2 with understanding what Christ has done for you. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you. And gave himself up for us in offering and a sacrifice to God. So we need an understanding of salvation, of how it works, the substitutionary death of Christ. Jesus came to be a substitute for you. He took your place where you should have been punished for your sin. He took that punishment on himself. And that, in and of itself, that sacrifice, God is well pleased with. At the end of verse 2, it says it's like a sweet smell. What's, what's the best smell for you. Barbecue. I always love it when somebody lights up the grill in the neighborhood. You can tell when they put a steak on. It smells good. I love driving down to the beach because about two miles before you get there, you can smell the ocean. I love that smell. Or if you've been away from home for a long time on vacation, you come back and the smell of your house, you walk in, oh yeah, it reminds you. Flowers. I don't know what it is. But the illustration here is that the sacrifice that Jesus made is like a sweet smell to God. What he did was pleasing to God. And that's, that's the idea that's given here. And, and you need to know that, to know God's word. Verse 5, he says, For this you know with certainty. So again, he's talking about the knowledge. What do you know? This you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or of God. So we have to have an understanding of sin and what sin is. He says that you, you know for certainty about the inheritance that you have with God and how that works. You have an understanding of the kingdom of Christ and of God and what that is. 
He says, this you know with certainty. So to walk in love, again, is connected to knowledge. It's, it's, it's based on an understanding. And in verse 6, he says, don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. How are you deceived? People are deceived when they don't know. If you have the knowledge that you need, you won't be deceived. That's why education is important. That's why knowing is important. Don't let anybody deceive you. So knowing God's word, there it is. Practicing righteousness, is it in this passage? What about verse 1? Be imitators of God. How much more righteous can you be? Live like God lives. Be imitators of God. Love like he loves. Be compassionate like he's compassionate. Verse 2, display love in your life. Walk in love just as Christ loved you. Take the pattern of what Jesus did and put it into your life. He was willing to sacrifice himself for you. You be willing to sacrifice yourself for others. Verse 4, rather than coarse jesting and silly talk and all of that, what does he say that we should do? Give thanks. So again, all of these things are outward. You're doing it for other people, to other people. What about denying ungodliness? Verse 3, don't let immorality or impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So put away those things, he says. In verse 4, there must be no, again, denying ungodliness, no filthiness, no silliness, no jesting, coarse jesting. And we could get into all of these words and describe them again, but we won't do that this morning. And then verse 7, don't be partaker with them. There's always a temptation to do what others are doing around you, but know the difference and don't join in when they're, when they're doing those things because they're going to draw you away. So is it there, knowing God's word, practicing righteousness, denying ungodliness? Yes. What about the next one? Walk as children of light. Verse 8, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So there's the command that Paul gives again. For the fruit of the light consists in, here we go again, goodness, righteousness, and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. See it again? Or are we, are you drifting yet? Sometimes patterns, repetitions can be too much. But I want you to get it. It's here again. Knowing God's word. What does it say in verse 10? Trying to do what? Trying to learn. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Where do we learn it? You have to read what God said. Again, the scriptures. Knowing the scriptures. Knowing the word of God. In verse 13, he says all things become visible when they're exposed by the light. Light, as we already mentioned, is a metaphor for knowledge. It's a metaphor for truth. Light exposes what's there. It exposes what's in the darkness. And so light, therefore, is knowledge, even itself. And as light exposes what's in the darkness, so truth exposes what's evil. And how do we know what is truth and what is evil? Go back to what God has written. You have to know it to know God's word. What about practicing righteousness? Verse 9, for the fruit of the light consists in what? Goodness, righteousness, and truth. 
Same thing he said back in verse 24 of chapter 4, created in righteousness and holiness and truth. He keeps repeating these things. Goodness, just being good, like God is good, which means apart from evil. There's evil in the world, we know that. Happened again in a big time way on Friday morning early, right, in Colorado. I still don't know why he did it. It's evil, murder. What are we to be? The opposite of that, good. God doesn't do that. That's not the nature of God to do that. And so it shouldn't be ours either. Goodness, righteousness, again, living the way God would have us live in truth, living according to what God has said. What about denying ungodliness? Verse 11, he says it plainly. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Those are deeds that will be unrewarded. We know in 1 Corinthians 3, he puts it another way, that we will be rewarded as Christians, but some of the deeds that we do won't. Right? Some of them will be wood, hay, and stubble. And the fire will reveal what sort of action it was. But others will be gold and silver and precious stones. And we will be rewarded. And so he says, don't participate in the deeds that will be unrewarded. The deeds that don't matter. The deeds that will be burnt up in the end. So deny ungodliness. And he says it in another way in verse 12. It's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Most of the crime that takes place, even here today, now, takes place at night. Why? So they won't be seen. They want to do things in secret. If you're doing something in secret and you don't want people to know about it, check it. It's probably not upright. The thing's done in secret. And what's he say to do about those things? Don't even talk about them. It's not, wor it's not worth talking about. Don't participate in those types of unfruitful deeds. So is it there again, knowing God's word, practicing righteousness, denying ungodliness? And we'll fly through this last one, chapter 5, verse 15. He says, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. So walk in wisdom is what he's saying. And down through verse 21. I won't read it this time, but is knowing God's word there? Yes. Verse 17. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. There it is. Boom. Understand what the will of the Lord is. How do we gain that understanding? Got to go to God's word. It's there. Read it. Know it. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Verse 19, he says to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In the, com the uh, companion passage in Colossians to this one, it says teaching and admonishing one another in spiritual hymns and spiritual songs. And so as we sing together, we speak together, we're teaching each other what? About God. When we sing grace unmeasured and we sing it together, what are we talking about? We're talking about the grace of God. We're teaching each other and helping each other to grasp onto these great truths. Knowing God's word. Teaching and singing. What about practicing righteousness? Verse 18 he says at the end of the verse, be filled with the Spirit. Capital S, the Spirit of God. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, righteousness, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness. There's no law against those things. Be filled with the Spirit. It means to be controlled by Him. When we make decisions, when we face temptation, allow, put yourself down, 
exercise humility and let God's spirit control you in the decisions you make and the things that you do. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. It's worship. Verse 20, always giving thanks for all things. Verse 21, being subject to one another. And again, we could delve into all of these ideas, but the idea is to practice righteousness, to, to do things the way God would do them. What about denying ungodliness in this passage? Verse 17, what's he say? Do not be foolish. Don't be foolish. Verse 18, don't be drunk. And verse 18 also, don't be excessive, for that is dissipation, excessiveness. And so again, we could get into all the detail of these words, but to me it's amazing. Even just a quick cursory look at this book, the pattern repeats itself over and over and over again. Every single one of them. Know God's word, practice righteousness, deny ungodliness. It's helped me. I hope that as you think about what we talked about this morning, that it will help you as well. We could get into a lot of different practical applications about how to make this work, but at least if we've got it, maybe it'll help us the next time we're faced with temptation or the next time we're faced with you know, wanting to do something with somebody. Just remember, know God's word, practice righteousness, deny ungodliness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and how clear it is. I just ask that as we think about what we've heard this morning, that the Spirit of God would teach us and help us to grow more and more into the image of your Son, into the likeness of, of who you are. Help us, Lord, to be diligent in our study of your word. Help us not to let it go. Lord, help us to be faithful in our own devotional life and reading, in our study, in our attendance here at church, in our, our gaining of knowledge of your word. I pray also, Lord, that you'd give us grace to be able to do what we know is right. Help us to follow your word in detail. Help us to not steal, to not lie, to not give in to lust and greediness, and to do things in darkness. Help us to put off the old self and to practice righteousness. Lord, help us to live for you, not for our sakes, not so that we can have a better life, but so that you can be glorified in what we do. Help others to be able to see you in us as we live. And I pray, Lord, that you would just give us grace as we go home this morning and help us to just think through what we've learned. In Jesus' name, amen.